Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley. I am the publisher on Women's Agenda and I'm with our editor-in-chief, Tala Lambert. Hello, Tala. Hey, Ange. So on the agenda this week, we will be discussing the billionaire Australian businesswoman who is giving a lot of it away. There's been a baby boom. We're going to be talking with Sarah Bailey, crime author who has just written her fourth book. And we'll be asking the question as to whether or not this is the final days or perhaps the final hours of Christian Porter's time on the front bench. Thank you for listening. So, Tala, how are you? I'm good, Ange. How are you? How's your 95th week in lockdown? It's great, thank you. I've been searching under the bed. I've been looking behind the couch, all through the car. I'm trying to find the the stash of money that an anonymous donor has just left somewhere for me (laughs) that I can use for all my legal fees. I, I don't know if there's any word on exactly how much money Christian Porter has uh, mysteriously come across with regards to his support for his legal fees, but you know, yeah. I think I think the legal costs are expected to be more than a million dollars. So, well, if he doesn't know who it is, then I mean, he can't be blamed. How can he possibly disclose who they are if he doesn't even know who's who's you know? That's a very good point. So we will get into that story shortly. But first, let's share a win for women this week. There actually have been a lot, so I'm excited about this little segment today. Tyler, do you want to kick us off? Away from Christian Porter for a moment. <laughs> um, yes, there have been a lot of wins this week, and my win is that Verve Super which is a fund that we've worked with a lot over the last few years and is run by three very impressive women, has actually raised a massive $2.6 million this week. And it's come from a range of investors, including prominent businesswomen, human rights lawyers and activists. And it kind of flies in the face of the the typical startup and investor community where male startups um, typically dominate the ranks of those attracting venture capitalist funding in Australia. So, Ange, I believe you spoke with Alex Andrews, who's one of the co-founders this week. And she said that being a majority female and impact investor owned is absolutely the priority of Verve Super. And it goes back to their overall mission of, of aiming to build wealth for women and to be a destination for women who want to build that wealth. So this is just, I think it's phenomenal. They're just absolutely movers and shakers, these women. So um, congratulations to them. That's just a, that's a mammoth effort and um, and hopefully it will see them you know, cement their place and keep growing in the years to come. Yeah, um, I was thrilled to see that they'd raise this, but but more so that they've been able to stay majority female-owned as well and that they've been able to talk to all these different uh, female investors about their, their mission and get them on board in a way for a lot of these female investors, they, they'd never invested in startups and they're not startup investors. So this was quite a big shift for them. And Christina Hobbs, who is also a co-founder on Verve and has actually won our, uh, she took home our 2019 Women's Agenda Leadership Awards award in the Emerging Entrepreneur of the Year category, which is where we first got to know her. So it's great to see how the journey has continued from there. Christina also has a fascinating backstory and and career as well that I encourage everybody to go check out. But um, Christina actually she she took on a lot of this fundraising and she was she was pregnant at the time and you know she's been quite upfront and open talking about how investors would ask about what that would mean and yeah just well done to Christina for for doing that. Um, 
you know, and I think she was on maternity leave when the news of this was broke and it got a lot of really big press. So that was really good to see as well. And um, just the fact that they were able to get people on board regarding their, their mission, which was really good. Yes, it is a very honourable mission as well. So go and check out Verve Super for sure. Yeah. So my win is sort of along a similar theme, but slightly different. It does involve wealth and it does involve, well, no longer a startup, but uh, <laughs> definitely not a startup. <laughs> so my win is yeah, really hearing from a female billionaire in Australia. And not only that, but a female billionaire who is in her 30s, who is at the helm of what I believe is now Australia's fastest growing company. And that company is Canva something that many of us have used for many years. So I am talking about Melanie Perkins, who is uh, the co-founder on Canva. And Canva is now worth more than 55 billion Australian dollars. So yeah, one of those kind of success stories. Uh, Melanie's still in her 30s. Uh, Yeah, whatever, you know. (laughs) I love this story, though, because she talks about how like she and her co-founder Cliff Obrecht just have always thought that they're just custodians of their wealth. Like they don't they don't look at that thinking, hey, we have $55 billion in the bank or, or you know, equity to, to use however we want. They've just thought of it as, you know, in the way that they could distribute that. So that was such a big part of this, this story and their announcement as well was around um, wanting to donate that. Yeah, so the, the, so the company's valued at that because it just had a, a massive raise, another they raised another two hundred million, so it put the the value of the company at I think it was US forty four billion, which equates to around fifty five Australian billion, give or take a billion. I think the calculations are correct. So Melanie and Cliff they still own thirty percent of Canva, so this latest valuation puts them like it really skyrockets them further up the rich list in Australia, so it puts them ahead of people uh, like. James Packer, Kerry Stokes, uh, it puts them ahead of Clive Palmer, although, you know, we're all kind of, yeah, we, we don't know how much money Clive Palmer has. And so that's great to see. And just this idea that they're saying that they're going to give away the majority of their, their fortune. And she, Melanie talks about it being a two-step plan that she and her co-founders, there was three of them, but they basically have always had, and that is to, you know, the first step to build the biggest software company in the world. So, yep, they've pretty much done that. And then the second step to do as much good as possible. So I think it's kind of a lesson in, in goal setting as well. Like keep it simple. Yeah, so cool. I just, I would love to have a coffee with Melanie Perkins, maybe a wine. I'd really enjoy that. <laughs> I just she can pick like to pick the brain. <laughs> Exactly. Okay, back to uh, a couple of key stories that we want to discuss. So we might start with Christian Porter, Tyler. We we did talk about the missing fortune that you and I just can't seem to find from the mysterious donor. It's really unfortunate. Christian, Christian, Christian. But tell us about what's gone on with Christian Porter, former Attorney General, who now sits, uh, continues to sit on the front bench as Minister for Innovation, I believe it is. Yeah. And I mean, look, this is that's that's a huge part of the problem anyway, because why is he still in this position? Christian Porter was accused of a shocking affront to transparency this week, and that came from former Prime Minister and his former colleague, Malcolm Turnbull. Um, why was he accused of that? Because Porter, who is currently the Minister for Industry, Science and Technology, says he has no way of finding out who the donors to a blind trust are. Um, that 
contributed significant donations to his defamation lawsuit against the ABC. It's just an outrageous claim because in public office, you have to declare if you get so much as a free cup of coffee. The fact that Porter thinks that he is exempt from disclosing, you know, these these hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially that went towards his defamation lawsuit um, for, let's face it, a historical rape allegation. So who who is funding that anyway? But the fact that he doesn't think that he needs to disclose that and that it's all above board is just beyond the pale. Um, and, you know, lots of people, including Malcolm Turnbull, but um, Mark Dreyfus as well, said, you know, it raises so many other questions, including, you know, were the donors overseas? Were any of the donors lobbyists for the, the Liberal Party? Were any of them beneficiaries from Porter's actions or, or decisions that Porter can make? Were they criminals? It is just so ridiculous that our former Attorney General, who would have every idea in the world why this is so heinous, does not think he needs to disclose this information. Let's let's wait and see. I mean, certainly, you know, this has been a story swirling for about three days now and we haven't heard very much from the Prime Minister at all. He said that he's he's looking into it. <laughs> well, we did get the mother of all distractions when uh, the Prime Minister did a joint press conference uh, with Boris Johnson and uh, Joe Biden, and they announced the you know the significant strategic uh, defence shift, and that Australia will be getting access to nuclear powered submarines. So it was like there was lots of flags. There was Don't you think that was like that. the ultimate pale male stale flex? Like. <laughs> Honestly, just I mean, I understand. I mean, I can see that obviously, you know, Morrison hasn't been able to conveniently time this. I don't think, you know, we've got too many people involved in a decision like this to make it happen. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, wow. So there it goes. Just um, the Women's Safety Summit from last week. We won't be hearing much more about that. Uh, whatever's going on with uh, Christian Porter, it looks like, you know, we can kind of move past that now. You know, in saying that, I also think that Morrison has got an easy out here with Christian Porter. Like that this is, it's so beyond like acceptable that it should be an an easy thing to do now and um, I actually do think that Christian Porter will stand down and that I I can't see him contesting the next election just he'll return to Western Australia and do whatever he does there but that's um do it quickly do it quickly like you and I had that conversation earlier in the week why aren't these conversations and these decisions being handed down quickly to show that you give a shit to show that you know that outrage, that public outrage that is there, clearly it's not for nothing, right? Like people aren't just getting up in arms because we hate Christian Porter. Like, I mean, well, I'm for sure Morrison, there's no Morrison, but- he has to go and like get some advice. <laughs> Which is like, the funniest part. Get- what do you need advice on? <laughs> like this, he is the advice. <laughs> I don't know, but just that whole thing of like how he's he you know, he's obviously claiming he doesn't know who it is, but surely there has to be some kind of suggestion along the way of who this could be, and like, and can we just no people don't donate this money without expecting something in return, and I've heard multiple people refer to it this way, but Christian Porter owes somebody. A, a debt and we don't know who that is or what their agenda is or where they come from what country they come from what and it's just 
it is really disturbing to think that this could potentially not be the end. We'll see. We'll wait and see what the next few days bring. Maybe by the time we publish this podcast, uh, something will have shifted. Okay, so on to another story, which we'll touch on short for just maybe briefly before we go on to uh, your interview with Sarah Bailey. So um, I wanted to, well, I, I wrote about this yesterday, but it's just that these figures came out, uh, these birth figures came out regarding this surge in births that babies that were born in New South Wales in the second quarter of 2021. So that is between April and June. The figures the, the the number the proportion of babies born is up nine percent. So there are nineteen thousand one hundred and thirteen babies born in that three month period, and there's been indications as well in Victoria that there has also been a surging birth rate occurring. Um, with Health Minister uh, Martin Foley saying back in June that um, he basically said it himself, we are going through a massive baby boom in Victoria at record levels. So. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, that's a whole other conversation regarding what leads to this. And it's interesting because apparently experts were saying that they wouldn't expect this to happen. So anyway, they're, they're clearly there's a lot of people having babies right now. But that got um, me thinking about all those new parents and particularly new mothers who are having babies and in the sake um, might just go to New South Wales to, to point this out at the moment. But um, looks like that surge has occurred in that quarter just before lockdown, which means that a lot of mothers have had these babies either just before lockdown, they're having them in lockdown, but whatever it is, they're dealing with a newborn in lockdown, which presents a lot of issues and problems. And especially when uh, the birth rate stats also note that it has been higher, um, particularly in southwestern Sydney, where we know that some of the strictest restrictions have been in place. And I've... It's got us thinking about what these new parents are experiencing, going through isolation. They don't have the village readily available to them. They are even facing restrictions around exercise time, you know, limits on on how long you can be exercising when we know um, how much you might want to be out there uh, pushing a pram for hours and hours a day just as something to do, but also to try and get your baby to sleep. And also the, the lack of access these new parents have to mothers' groups and parents' groups, which I know you and I, Tyler, have found particularly valuable. And so I've heard from a few different people saying that those they either just haven't had a parent group interaction at all, they may have had one in-person interaction, then it's gone online, or it's been completely online, or they've attempted some kind of 30-minute Zoom session and then moved to WhatsApp, and they're just not really building that relationship. And we're running like a, a brief kind of little quick poll and survey on this, and already we're hearing from so many new mothers talking about how how difficult this is, um, not just the isolation, but also maybe having a grandparent overseas who they're unlikely to see still for months to come, or even interstate, or even you know ten kilometers away, and and help and support that they just can't access. So, Tali, you had a baby in Jan. So you had a baby kind of in the, a couple of months before the the pandemic month before the pandemic um so I was in lockdown as a new mum um I was really lucky because I actually did get two weeks of mother's groups which was a huge just like the biggest support to me that I could ever have imagined um and I had significant reluctance about doing that because I've always been one of those people that's a little bit dubious about you know social situations like that but it was I just I think for me that's um I feel like that is one of the biggest wrenches and I I really feel for new mums that are going through 
this right now and aren't able to access that kind of support. But I I do know a little bit about like, you know, what it feels like just feeling that kind of sense of isolation during that period. And um, I can say that like, you know, I think as a, and you would know this too, Ange, but just with a newborn, like you just are constantly seeking some kind of distraction and to feel a little bit like yourself um, and that often comes with whatever social interaction you can get, whether that be like with a cafe owner or, you know, a person in the park or whatever. And to not have that um, is just a, a really big loss. And I, I I, do think that we might see the repercussions of that and like the the, the challenges that a lot of these women are facing um, as a result. And even in my own circumstance, and I, I was fortunate, I did have support um, and my partner was able to take considerable time off at that time because of lockdown, to be honest. Um, but it was it, like I, I think that I probably, my mental health suffered more than it would have had Teddy been brought into the world at a different time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just... Baby booms are wonderful and, um, you know, that that's so great in so many ways. But, yeah, look, I think that we need to be doing more to support new parents um, because it is just, it's a lot. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really tricky, complex, emotionally taxing time in lots of ways. So, um, yeah. Yes, I I agree. I've had two mothers groups and I think I went into them similar to what you just explained then, that sense of um, this kind of organised socialisation. I just wasn't sure that I'd be into it and I absolutely have been into it. I think it's so great and I hope that everything is being done to support those new parents and um, that if we can try and make up for some of this lost time as well for them to make sure that they are able to engage in some of those interactions because already and the Gidget Foundation has released some research about this but it's not even just the lack of interactions and the isolation but even just the um the the anxiety around giving birth in hospital and that idea of will I catch COVID while I'm there will I be able to have my support person in the birthing suite with me will I be able to have any kind of visitors at all when will I be able to introduce a baby to other people in my network to your, your parents will they talk about also I've seen some research from from Europe on this as well as the anxiety around that concern of like oh is what it will, how will my newborn um, cope having not had much interaction with other people as well? Yeah. So uh, you can check out that story. And if you have had a baby in the past 18 months or so, um, or if you've been pregnant in the past 18 months, and we are running a, a little short poll where you're welcome to share your experiences as well. And you'll find that in that story about the surging birth rates. So I have just, um, I, I'm actually recording in my car, speaking of strange times, and I hope it's okay because I was getting sweating and so I put on the air conditioner um, and I'm going through that process of, is it illegal to be sitting in my car right now? Is this a legitimate excuse, the fact that I can't get any sort of peace and quiet from my own family? And I, I, I don't know, I, I think it is, but we'll see. I'm also kind of considering the fact that when I eventually get an electric car, I hope they'll also build in some kind of desk situation because I feel we all need the added desk space and somewhere else to go. (laughs) So leaving those thoughts aside, we need to cross to your interview with Sarah Bailey. Let's cross to that interview now.
I'm joined now by Sarah Bailey, who is the author of the newly released The Housemate, as well as The Dark Lake, Into the Night and Where the Dead Go. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you very much for having me. How has everything been going? I know you've been busy during lockdown. Yeah, it's been difficult as it has been for so many people. I think being in Melbourne, it's felt particularly unpleasant this time around. I think, you know, this is our sixth lockdown, I think. And yeah, it's definitely starting to become pretty tedious. But um, I'm lucky I've got, uh, you know, full-time work. So that's definitely keeping me busy around the joys of homeschool. Oh, goodness. (laughs) There's a lot. There's a lot on your plate. Um, Tell us about your journey writing your new book, The Housemate, and the inspiration for for doing so. Yeah, I had written the three novels in the Gemma Woodstock trilogy, and I guess I was keen to see if I could do something different. So that's sort of how it started out. Um, I have lots of ideas for books, so I don't tend to find coming up with ideas the difficult part. It's sort of taking those ideas and trying to wrangle them into some sort of narrative and ultimately a 100,000-word story. And I had lots of ideas for this one that ended up, I think, merging together. So um, I was really keen to sort of explore the dynamic between some housemates, um, layer on top like a crime sort of plot, and um, I seem to be pretty fond of having a, a lead Um, female protagonist who is sort of investigating in some way so I've sort of switched out a detective for a journalist but hopefully it all came together in the end. Yeah well I'm halfway through and I'm absolutely loving it but I you know I'm such a a mad fan of the rest of your books and the Gemma Woodstock character as well Um, but you mentioned there around developing you know very strong female protagonists and obviously Gemma was your go-to in the first three books but in this book it's a development of a character called Olive Groves. Is it a conscious decision of yours given women personas in film and fiction are often pretty one-dimensional? It's definitely not a conscious endeavour or any sort of intentional quest. I don't feel any sort of responsibility, I guess, in, in doing that necessarily. I have actually written an audio book recently that has a weak male protagonist, someone who's quite not what I would call strong. I think I just like writing interesting characters, um, but I think there's something really fun about tension. So I think it tends to work out well that if I put my characters in environments like a newsroom or a police station in a small country town, if they're women, they are more likely to be fighting against ingrained, you know, social expectations and gender stereotypes. So I think that is always fun for a writer to play with, any kind of tension. So I feel like that's probably why those characters end up being um, tough and having to sort of... um, elbows out and and kind of just charge ahead because they have to kind of overcome adversity not just in the actual plot of the crime which is you know always challenging but also just in their day-to-day kind of world so I think that's more where it stems from as opposed to any sort of intentional statement or political piece in my writing. Mm. The protagonist, Olive, as I mentioned, is a reporter and she develops this obsession with an unsolved crime case. But being obsessed with true crime seems to be, well, it's an obsession that's taken on by a lot of women in Australia and globally. Why? What is our fascination with true crime? Well, I think 
and I'm not a psychologist, so I, this is just more my perspective, but I think everybody is uh, obsessed with closure. Like even from a young age, I was thinking about this the other day, like a lot of little kids' books, it's all about questions and then finding the answers. So, I mean, I think as humans we're kind of taught and we also, from a survival point of view, have to figure things out and we want to understand why something happens. That sort of, I guess, is what sets us apart a little bit from um, our animal friends. So I think the more sort of evolved our brains get, the more we create problems to solve. Um, And I think that there's a safety element to it too. You know, I think particularly with women, there's sort of a bit of a sense of if I can understand what happened to that person and why and how, maybe there's a bit of a survival kind of technique that kicks in with understanding that and being able to prevent it in my own world. Um, And there's just the the whole concept of a loose thread. I think when we just don't know what happened, it feels like there's not a neatness in the world. You know, we like to understand something. We like to sort of be able to put things together. So, yeah, I think the true crime phenomenon is a modern kind of thing in the sense that, you know, there's podcasts and there's stories and there's um, books about it. But I think it's always there. It's always been there. Um, Even historically, people have wanted to know you know, they've wanted to understand. So, yeah, I, I think um, it makes sense that people that are in that um, world from a professional point of view, like my characters are, they're even more so interested in putting to bed something that they've been involved in because I think it also starts to drift into personal pride for them. You know, they kind of want to um, be able to be involved in the solving of it. So the ego kicks in too. Well, that feels nicer than just, you know, that we've, we're all sociopaths. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a, a hero quality to a detective in being part of solving um, something mm. and figuring it out and being the clever person that put it all together. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, journalists, I think, are similar, but um, there's also the ad- added sort of uh, piece of having to work out how you craft that message and present it as a narrative to the world so it's slightly they're both worthy professions but there's a slightly different bent on them I think. Mm. You mentioned it's not a conscious decision of yours to to place in political messaging but you know you do deal with very complex issues that are very relevant to women including themes around assault and and sexual violence and also you know the the complexities of motherhood. Do you feel that those are just kind of flow-ons from from you being a, a female writer and being able to to kind of identify with with those themes yeah I just I think I've, I didn't intend to write crime either it sort of just happened that all of the ideas I came up with centered around a murder so sort of that was just how it kind of kicked off really but I, what I really do like about writing crime is that even though you've got your actual central plot and characters um, and world that you create for them, inevitably all of these other things start to layer in. So if I'm writing about a journalist in a newsroom, um, there's going to be uh, some observations that have to be made about how she feels about technology and you know new sort of platforms in media and younger people coming up through the industry so you can kind of then have this um side plot commentary on on that which i think you know i really enjoyed unpacking or how women are treated in um the police force and what they might sort of come up against um from a colleague or from even just a public perception point of view or how they even have to sort of explain their job to their families and different attitudes um, that people might have around 
a detective being put in danger if she's a mother. So it's really kind of a bit of a privilege, I, I guess, to be able to write books that have a really strong sort of plot and, um, you know, hopefully are sort of fun to read, but that also kind of bring all these other questions that I really just like exploring to the table. They're not personal stories for the most part, and I'm very lucky. I'm in an industry where I think increasingly women and men are treated quite equally, and I personally have had lots of opportunities but I'm very aware that there is still just so much social ingrained expectations, pressures, assumptions, structural problems with the way things are set up, um, you know, basic, basic things from what time childcare is open to and the expectations around sort of who does what in certain roles. Like it's, it's so much of it is there that we don't even see. So, yeah, I, I really enjoy using my, my crime books to just explore, comment, unpack, think about all kinds of different issues. Mm. How did you end up in this genre? (laughs) Uh, Well, very much by accident. So um, I had written a whole bunch of short stories. They weren't really crime-based. Some of them were probably, I guess you could say, were crime-oriented, but they were fairly broad in topic. And then the ideas that I kept having just... They were all crime. So I never actually consciously sat down and thought, oh, I'm writing a crime book. But once I had a manuscript completed and I was sort of pitching it to agents, um, they were very clear on their sort of um, submission requirements that you had to sort of say, you know, what was the genre? What was the sort of pithy pitch for the story? All that sort of thing. And I was then, I guess, forced to go, okay, well, I guess this is a crime thriller or a detective procedural story. So um, that was almost probably the first time I really thought about it. And then, um, yeah, I sort of discovered, I guess, that there was this whole world of really quite strong genre-based alliances, you know, in terms of writing festivals that were specifically crime and all this sort of stuff that I hadn't really ever thought about before. But I really, I like it a lot. I think it suits well, it obviously suits the kinds of ideas that I come up with, so that that helps. But it's a really lovely community of people and it's really supportive. And um, I think we're lucky just to be able to kind of have that um, Trojan horse ability to comment on all of these other interesting things while writing fun page-turning sort of stories. So I, I'm glad I've ended up in, um, in the crime space, but I, I don't, you know, I would love to maybe at some point write something else it's sort of I I think it just depends on what the ideas are yeah well I think that there's there's a lot of scope but you definitely do write page turners I there is zero doubt about that um how did writing through this period and through the pandemic change your flow or your perspective at all it was difficult but probably for me it was actually a little bit of a blessing Last year, not definitely not the lockdowns that have kind of rolled into 2021. Um, they've been very tedious from my point of view, but I, it, to some extent for 2020 for me last year, you know, I was on a deadline. I work full time. Um, it is always a bit of a battle against time that I have to navigate anyway. Um, and I was running out of time um, in terms of how many weeks I had left to get this manuscript finished. And I had... I had given it a really good injection of effort and attention over the sort of summer holidays. So I'd sort of, I don't know, maybe gotten 30% of the the words down. 
and I kind of knew what the rest of the story needed to do and, and be. But lockdown did allow me to really dedicate some heavy lifting sort of after work hours to it. But it was pretty, it felt quite relentless as well because it was very much work, sort kids out and then kind of sort everything out set up shop for the night and write, you know, a couple of hours sort of every evening. So I loved it because I think I did get into quite a good flow. It was actually more of a routine than I normally managed to navigate. So I was able to sort of pick up where I left off quite easily. It is different enough from my everyday work that it feels like a bit of a, a gear change. So I like I like that about it. But I'm terrible at writing from home. So it's my least favourite place to write write from. Um, So that was a bit of a sort of frustration that I just had to get over because I didn't have any other choice, obviously. But, yeah, you know, both a blessing and a a curse, I guess. I mean, I I would much prefer to have been, you know, at coffee shops or libraries or whatever on the weekends doing it. But, um, yeah, I certainly found from a time investment point of view it was easier to bargain with myself because I wasn't giving anything else up really. Yeah. Well, the end product is definitely worth picking up. Um, so The Housemaid is out now through Alan and Unwin, and I encourage everyone to go and pick up a copy um, and also pick up a copy of Sarah's other three books while you're there. Um, and she churns them out at the rate of knots. So we'll have another one in another year, which is is always very exciting. Um, but Sarah, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for supporting Aussie Books. It's it's really lovely. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for the interview, Tala. I have not read any of Sarah's books and I believe she had this is her fourth book, so I need to get stuck in. You have to get on it. She's the best. And, I mean, you probably can see my bookshelf behind me now, but I have, like, every single one of them in my bookshelf right now. Um, I think she's just such an amazing Australian talent um, and she's – She's just uh, so cool in that she juggles so much. She's got a young family. She's got a, a career in advertising and she's managed to churn out four books in the last, you know, four years. So um, she's prolific, but people should absolutely be aware of who she is and get on it. Yes, I will do. That is it for us for this week. I don't usually have many final recommendations of things to listen to or read, but I do this week. So I want to share Elizabeth Holmes, if you haven't heard of her. She was the founder and chief executive of Theranos, which was a health company that attracted a huge range of investors, including Rupert Murdoch. It Basically, they claimed to offer this portable drug testing machine that could test for hundreds of diseases with a single drop of blood. And I've always been fascinated by this story. It's been going on for years. At one point, it was worth like billions of dollars. Um, Elizabeth Holmes was featured on the cover of magazines as like the next great entrepreneur, the next Steve Jobs. She even styled herself of Steve Jobs where she'd wear the, the black kind of turtleneck things, that idea of, you know, it's one less decision in my day if I wear the same thing every day. So just very charismatic and obviously just had this incredible ability to attract all these investors. And basically the claims of what their portable drug testing machines could do, uh, (laughs) they didn't really work. And it's been, and it all came apart and now she's on trial for fraud. And so the case is happening right now. And so there's a fantastic book called Bad Blood, which goes through this Elizabeth Holmes story and, and it's by the journalist who broke the story and it is it's just an incredible um, piece of work. But now there's also a podcast, uh, The Final Chapter, which goes through what's happening with the trial now and it is 
um, it is it is fascinating to watch. She's she's kind of 37, 38 years old. She's she's now married, um, and she's had a baby, I believe, in the last few months. So that all comes into it, and it's just yeah, really interesting. So um, yeah, get on board that. There's actually multiple series and podcasts, and I think there's a Netflix series, and there's so many things you can do because it's it's such an intriguing story to to go and follow i'll get on to that <laughs> that is it from us thank you tyler thanks Ange. thank you for listening to the women's agenda podcast a reminder that you can catch up on all the stories that we've discussed on our website where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter and if you want to support women's agenda you can also join women's agenda extra where we share a few little extra bits and pieces including our video series our ebooks and some other things that will support you in your career thank you to my co-host on the podcast tyler thank you to sarah for the conversation and we will chat to you again next week